Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, a potent cocktail invented during the gold rush that looks like pale liquid gold. Only in the richest city in the world would you then take that sweet and magical fruit and put it in a cocktail, for God's sake. And we meet a transgender child who definitely knows who she is. And now her mom does, too. I look at pictures of her as a baby, and all I see is her face with the wrong haircut and the wrong clothes. Plus, two therapists who were so moved by the headlines about people arrested at the border, they decided they had to do something. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start our show this week with another in our series, Golden State Plate, where we've been exploring food and drink invented right here in California. If you're a cocktail drinker, you've probably tasted a few Pisco Sours in your time. That's the pale, foamy drink made with Pisco, which is a highly potent Peruvian brandy. The first recipe for the Pisco Sour came from Peru back in the 1940s. But many years before that, 19th century California was gripped by a craze for another Pisco concoction that maybe should have come with a health warning. KQED's Carly Severn takes us back in time to the gold rush. It's happy hour in San Francisco's Comstock Saloon in the city's North Beach neighborhood. And Anthony Kocek, the bartender, is making a cocktail that was invented in this very city, on this same street, in fact, over 100 years earlier. Add a generous helping of ice. And then you want to vigorously shake it. Double strain, chill flat. It's called the Pisco Punch. You don't see it on many menus in this town, or anywhere, really. It's not frothy, like a Pisco Sour, and when it's strained into its chilled antique glass, it looks like pale liquid gold. We finish it off with doing a really nice lemon expression from a twist. Dig deep in there, you can see the pith is really white. But in the 1800s, this wasn't just a drink. Ordering Pisco Punch was a status symbol, and it said everything about the newfound wealth and ambition of Gold Rush San Francisco. Tech may be what floods this town with cash nowadays, but back then it was gold. Prospectors streamed into the city with money to burn and tastes to be satisfied. And they found a mixology culture that wouldn't be out of place today, says cocktail historian Duggan McDonald. Early San Francisco 
was the fastest growing richest city in the world and it was a port city and it had access to so many amazing wonderful ingredients right and when you have access when you have wealth what do you spend it on but amazing things to put on your body and in your mouth and that's food and drink every scene needs its headquarters and in 1880 San Francisco that place was a bar called the Bank Exchange and Billiard Saloon It was here that the Pisco Punch was born, on the site where the Transamerica Pyramid now stretches into the San Francisco sky. And this saloon was no dive. A grand marble bar, lovely chandeliers. Uh, it opened up in 1853, frankly, as a testament to the West. And behind the bar was the bank saloon's very own celebrity bartender, a Scotsman named Duncan Nicoll. He was the guy serving Pisco Punch to San Francisco's movers and shakers for an eye-watering price. In today's inflation, that would be $25 per cocktail. Today, CEOs battle over technology patents. But back then, Duncan Nichols' big triumph was acquiring the intellectual property rights to the bank's Pisco Punch recipe when he bought the place. It was that big. But what was so special about this drink? What was in it? For a start, there was the pisco itself. Pisco is a distilled fermented grape juice from Peru with extreme potency. And San Francisco was wild for it. But the stuff from Peru is single distilled. So it's distilled to proof, meaning it's not distilled to a higher proof and then cut with water. That kind of pisco is more concentrated than anything else on this planet. I mean, it gets into your bones. Peruvian traders had long been bringing pisco the four and a half thousand miles north up to the San Francisco Bay. And then gold arrived. And then more Peruvians came up because, obviously, they had a relationship with this territory, but they also had a relationship with mining. And then you add some pineapple. Now, pineapples arrived into San Francisco on many of the same ships that brought the Pisco. And they were a luxury item. And imagine, only in the richest city in the world would you then take that sweet and magical fruit and put it in a cocktail, for God's sake. Duggan tells me that San Francisco store owners would take whole pineapples straight from the docks and place them in their windows. And that pineapple became the international symbol of hospitality and luxury. Along with some lime and some syrup, Pisco Punch boasted a mystery ingredient that the owner, Duncan, would never divulge. A secret addition that, along with the Pisco, made this cocktail so mythically strong that the saloon apparently only allowed two per customer. No man but one knows what is in it. I have a theory it is compounded of the shavings of cherub's wings, the glory of a tropical dawn, the red clouds of sunset, and fragments of lost epics by dead masters. That's what author Rudyard Kipling, no less, wrote about the Pisco Punch. It makes a gnat fat an elephant. Is what another anonymous fan wrote at the time. And maybe that mystery ingredient might explain why writers were just so effusive in their love for it. That special something might have been Van Mariani, a fortified wine from Bordeaux, the principal ingredient in that, until it got banned, was coca leaves from Peru. In essence, cocaine. 19th century California, specifically San Francisco writing, you look at Twain and Kipling and all these guys, and there's a lot of energy in their prose, uh, a lot of hyperbole, shall we say. 
Uh, so I'm not surprised that these guys had a few Pisco punches with their coca leaves in them. But as with all crazes, things must come to an end. And in the case of the Pisco punch, that end was prohibition in 1919. Like so many bar owners, Duncan Nickel was forced to close his bank exchange saloon. And not long after, he took his mystery Pisco punch recipe to his grave. And San Francisco's hottest cocktail became a forgotten legend. Until 50 years later, in the 1970s, when a version of the bank's original recipe was unearthed. Places like the Comstock Saloon began bringing it back, with a spot of guesswork around that secret ingredient. And here, just down the street from where the bank once stood, they're still serving up several Pisco punches a night. And as my bartender tells me, like Duncan Nickel over a century ago, they still can't resist a little mystery. We have a secret proprietary ingredient that we put inside of our cocktail that we don't tell anybody what it is. Uh, I'll let you try it on its own, but you can tell me what you think it is, but I won't tell you if you guess right. Sounds like a challenge, right? Just go easy. For The California Report, I'm Carly Seven. And now it's time for another Letter to My California Dreamer. We've been asking you to send a letter to your family's original Californian, that person who first came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter comes from Tony Rodriguez, and he addressed it to himself. He's a Bronx native, but Tony found the road to Modesto, where he got the support to become his true self. Dear Self, You grew up in the boogie-down Bronx. Your childhood memories consist of steel, rubble, and moonlight over vacant lots in 1980s New York. You also dreamt a lot, mostly about sunny skies, endless deserts, beautiful foliage, surfing with the Beach Boys, and hiking over something other than concrete. You listened to your favorite song, California Dreamin', by the Mamas and the Papas. But you never stop dreaming about leaving your concrete jungle to go to the Golden State. You became a truck driver and started delivering from the East Coast to the West Coast. On your way to Fontana, California, you would often go off route just to drive along the Mojave Desert. After a few years of trucking, you settled down and got married in the Midwest. When you later enrolled in nursing school, you missed the smell of the desert and the excitement of a road trip adventure. You applied for your California nursing license, and after receiving it, you decided on a travel contract in Modesto. You ended up loving Modesto, going so far as to apply for a permanent position. The distance from Kentucky took a toll on your marriage, leading to a divorce. Even growing up on the East Coast, it was hard for you to be yourself when your mother put pressure on you to be a woman who would marry a man of worth and have a family. But the vast differences between the two of you became more evident as you had different plans for yourself, causing her to kick you out one night with only a garbage bag of clothes. But that never stopped you. Once you got to the Golden State, you were discovering yourself and the real you wanted to finally come out. 
with the unwavering support of your Modesto co-workers and friends, you finally got the courage to be who you really are when you announced your transition from female to male. You went from a rejected kid with a bag of clothes in the Bronx to a transgender male that works as a quality assurance nurse in the Golden State of California. Thank you for never giving up on that California dream. Now I feel I'm finally home in my own body and my new home state. I have sunny skies, endless deserts, beautiful foliage, surfing at the beach, though not with the Beach Boys. And I can hike over something other than concrete. Love, Tony. We want to hear your California dream letter. We've got an easy form on our website where you can tell us your story, californiareport.org. We might even ask you to record your letter to air here on the California Report magazine. So Tony went from being a rejected transgender kid to finding himself as an adult here in California. Now we're going to hear about a transgender child whose parents embraced her gender identity early on. Well, actually, her mom and dad had to go through a journey from real dismay to acceptance. My name is Gracie. I mean, Grace, because that's my real name. And how old am I? Seven and a half. Gracie is transgender, and she's been living as a girl since she was four years old. She hasn't had anything medical done. This is a social transition. Her name, her pronouns, the way she presents herself. She says her life is so much happier now than when people thought she was a boy. It was not right to me, and I didn't want people to say that, but they said it. It hurt in my feelings a lot. Did it make you angry at all? No, it just made me sad. And what's it like now? Feels happy to me. My colleague John Brooks spent some time with Gracie and with her mom for a story he reported for KQED, which is where we produce the California Report. Hey there, John. Hey, Sasha. So, John, why did you think this particular mom and daughter were so compelling? Well, I met Gracie and Molly at an East Bay summer day camp for transgender kids for a story I was reporting last year. I just thought Molly really articulated in such a compelling way her journey from real dismay about having such a young transgender kid to what is now complete acceptance. So this particular story, you know, is not about trying to define or explain what it's like to be a transgender child. It's really focused on the experience of the parents. So how long has Gracie's family known she's a girl? Well, Molly says Gracie was consistently expressing that she was a girl really since she was a toddler. As soon as she could tell us, it was, I'm a girl, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm that girl on that show, I'm that girl in that book, I'm the princess. So at first it was really hard for Molly and her husband. At the time, they considered Gracie to be their son, and they discouraged an interest in what have traditionally been considered girl toys and clothes. We filled her world with trucks and dinosaurs and superheroes. No, you can't have the dolls for Christmas. We're going to get you a pirate ship. And 
That's the part that I'm ashamed of now. So Molly wishes she could have accepted Gracie's identity earlier, but I should say here that it wasn't so long ago that uh, just what they were doing, which is discouraging uh, her transgender identity, is what professional psychologists recommended. That was the leading advice of the day. Now it's considered unethical for therapists to do that. And uh, however we were treating transgender kids in the past, uh, it wasn't working. We know that attempted suicide rates are a mind-boggling 40% among transgender adults. Wow. So did Molly and her husband talk to anybody about this, a professional therapist? Yeah, they uh, took her to a gender specialist. But they were still not completely comfortable with the idea of Gracie living publicly as a girl, And Molly had one question in particular for the therapist. What if we do this? What if we let our son walk into the world in a dress with fairy wings and crowns and high heels and even just in regular girl clothes? What if we let him do all of this and he gets to express himself and then he changes his mind? You know, John, there are gender expansive kids in my family, and I can understand the concern that, you know, even if adults are really supportive of trans or non-binary kids, that it might be really early for young children to publicly switch their gender identity. Yeah, you've uh, touched on a real controversy in the transgender research community. And as well, a lot of transgender people are really offended by this concept. But there is a body of research that says most transgender kids will give up their transgender identity by the time they reach adolescence or adulthood. However, a lot of researchers and therapists think those earlier studies aren't valid because those studies were measuring, they say, too many kids who were gender expansive in dress or mannerisms, but weren't really transgender in their core identity. How do you know? How does a kid know whether or not they're really transgender at their core versus just expressing themselves in a gender expansive way? Yeah, Sasha, that's the heart of the matter for so many parents. The gender therapists who support early social transitioning say if your child is persistent, consistent, and insistent, that they are another gender, you really have to listen to that. In any case, Molly did bring her question to the gender therapist. What if Gracie later changes her mind about being transgender? She said, that's not the question. The question is, what if you don't do it? And as soon as I knew there was even a chance that my kid could feel ashamed of who they are, there was no way. I had to support. I had to listen. And now... I look at pictures of her as a baby, and all I see is her and her face with the wrong haircut and the wrong clothes instead of the other way around. And Gracie sounds like she's doing great. What's the best thing about being transgender? Well, the best thing about being transgender is having a family that supports me when I'm being transgender. Is there a worst part? And Molly says that the family is just a lot happier now and that Gracie gets to express herself in the family as who she really is and that she gets to really live. Thanks, John, for sharing that story with us. Thanks, Sasha. That's John Brooks, digital editor for KQED Science.
Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. Even you don't know by now. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and while some of us celebrate with flowers and chocolate, there are those of us who dread February 14th. If you're one of those people, we are planning a Valentine's Week show just for you. We're going to talk breakups and the songs that get us through them. I'll start. For me, it was Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. So it ain't no use in calling out my name, gal. Like you never done before And it ain't no use in calling out my name, gal I can't hear you anymore I'm thinking and I'm So, whether your parting was mutual or not, drawn out or sudden, took place 20 years ago or yesterday, we want to know about your breakup song. Call us at 415-830-6580. That's 415-830-6580. And in a couple sentences, leave us a message about why that song helped you through a broken heart. We might use your message on the show for our California Breakup Playlist. So long, honey, baby, where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word, baby, so I just say fairly well. Every week on our show, we try to bring you a little bit of humanity behind the headlines. What's at stake in terms of human lives and emotions? Now we're going to hear the story of two Kaiser psychotherapists from California who've been so moved about what they've been hearing in the news recently that they decided to take their vacation days and travel on their own dime to talk to kids and parents who are being released from immigration detention. Many of those families are Central Americans seeking asylum. And since December, when two kids died in Border Patrol custody, the Trump administration has started releasing families more quickly from detention centers to sponsors around the country. Migrants released from the two largest family detention facilities run by ICE are getting dropped off in San Antonio, Texas. That's where KQED's Julie Small caught up with the California volunteers. Alicia Cruz and Chris Mullen have worked together for a decade and see clients in offices right next to each other. Here in San Antonio, they're getting ready to offer counseling to families in the most unlikely place, the Greyhound bus station. Let's go. It's a chilly morning as they drive from their Airbnb to the station. It's Chris's first time here. Alicia's volunteered twice before. It's not a choice for me. I've got to go. I've got to go help. It's, it was an immense pool that I couldn't really explain. And Alicia tells Chris the parents may need help talking about what they've been through, in part because they'll need to tell their stories to U.S. asylum officers. You could see sometimes how intense and overwhelmed they are when they're reliving their trauma. And, and you're reliving it sort of with them, in a way. Sure. It's still very raw and fresh because, you know, that's what they're escaping. When you're really disconnected, and that's often the case with PTSD, right, is that disconnect, then it sounds insincere, and also it can be very vague. When Alicia and Chris arrive at the Greyhound station, dozens of families have already been escorted inside by guards working for ICE. They're buying one-way tickets to reach family members or sponsors around the country. The parents and children are easy to spot in their brightly colored sweatsuits, parkas, and brandless tennis shoes issued by ICE. Many are sick and coughing, 
and they look dazed in these first moments of freedom. Nuns from a local church hand out box lunches and backpacks with toiletries. Then Alicia and Chris work their way down the benches, providing legal information to families and asking about their experiences crossing the border. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. gracias por compartir. The therapists are also keeping an eye out for signs of trauma or shock. They say people who fled violence are often re-triggered on the dangerous journey here and their time in U.S. detention. Alicia hands out Ziploc baggies of Legos for the children so they can play while their parents get to talk. Most of the migrants do not want their names used because they fear for the safety of their families. A mother of two tells Alicia she left Guatemala because a gang tried to extort money and threatened to kill her family when she didn't pay up. She describes crossing the Rio Grande with her 10-year-old daughter and 4-year-old son. She starts to cry, remembering her fear that they might die. We didn't have any water to drink. We spent four five hours lost before we got picked up by immigration. The mother tells Alicia that Border Patrol agents locked the family in a cold, windowless room for four days and only gave them one sandwich and one juice box a day. When her children cried, she says, agents told her to shut them up. This isn't your country, they said. After the family was finally transferred to ICE, they were given enough food to eat and access to showers. But the mother tells Alicia she regrets putting her children through this. I thought it would be easy. People told me, just turn yourself into immigration, but no, it's very difficult. Alicia listens attentively and reflects back what she's hearing, that the mother made the only choice she could. The truth is you didn't come because you wanted to. You came because you had to. The mom nods and wipes away her tears. A couple hours later, the woman and her kids board a bus to San Francisco, where they have a family member willing to sponsor them. The trip will take 39 hours. Alicia has given her some cash for meals and the name of a place where she can get help when she arrives. We have a trauma recovery center in San Francisco that works with asylum seekers and does therapy. While Alicia moves on to speak with another family, the other therapist, Chris, sits down across from a man with a nine-year-old son and asks him why they left Guatemala. The 29-year-old father tells her drug traffickers had built landing strips in the jungle near his town, and he saw local police working with them. One day, a friend told him his name was on a government hit list. The next day, that friend disappeared. As he speaks, tears drop steadily on the sleeve of his jacket. Honestly, I had never thought of leaving, because everything I have is there. The man crossed the border fence into California last month by climbing a tree with his son clinging to his back. I told my son to grab my neck and hold on really tight. Because I was going to jump, I told him, you have to hold on so you don't fall. After a week in Border Patrol custody, they were transferred to an ICE facility for fathers and sons. Now they're heading to the East Coast to stay with relatives. Next month, Chris will go back to her church in San Mateo 
to talk about the families who received donations from the congregation. Alicia plans to return to San Antonio as often as she can. Her family and other parents at her son's school have already donated enough money and frequent flyer miles for her next trip. For the California Report, I'm Julie Small. And that's our show for this week. If you missed any of today's show, subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Susie Racho directs our show. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin, Rob Spate, and Jim Bennett. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. David Marks is our online producer. This week, we welcome our new intern, Asal Isanapur, and our new managing editor, Vinnie Tong. The California Report's editorial team also includes Bianca Taylor, Taiki Hendricks, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.